turn to Deuteronomy. We do believe in the Old Testament in this church. For those of you who have been here for a year, you probably think the only book we care about is Romans, but that's not the case. We love the whole Bible, and I want to ask you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and while you're turning there, let me just say that uh, we're going to take a, about a two-week break from Romans and look at this passage in, in Deuteronomy, as well as uh, several other passages this week and next week, to, to answer this basic question, what, what is going on here? What is going on here? I mean, right here and right now. And I want to ask that question and wrestle with that question this week, and then next week, uh, ask the question, wrestle with the question, uh, why are we doing the particular things that we're doing right here and right now as we gather week by week? Um, because, um, well, two reasons, really. Um, most recently, I've had some interactions with some of you about the nature of worship, what it is, and, and why we do some of the things we do. Um, but as I look around this room, um, if I asked you to raise your hand, and I'm not going to ask you to do this, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, if you were not with us before August 2nd, 2009, pretty close to half of you would raise your hands. We've grown. I mean, God is, is being so kind to us, so gracious to us as a congregation. Um, we've grown. There are unfamiliar faces here. I'm pretty familiar with most everybody, but a lot of you still aren't familiar with each other. We've grown. It's a wonderful thing. And the thing that is, as we'll see, that is at the center of all that we are and everything we're doing is worship. And I want to try in these next two weeks to kind of get us on the same page with respect to this thing that is at the center of who and what we are as this portion of the body of Christ so that we have some understanding of what it is that's going on here and why it is we're doing the particular things we're doing, okay? So that's what we're going to do. And I want to begin with this passage in Deuteronomy. So read with me Deuteronomy 6, verse 20, and we're going to read through verse 8 of chapter 7. And I would just commend this passage to you and, and encourage you in this week to come perhaps to reflect upon it and meditate upon it and and frankly, to see yourselves in it, because you are the Israel of God. You are the Israel of God. And what happens in this particular passage has and is and will continue to happen to you who are the people of God. So verse 20 of chapter 6. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall say to your son and your daughter too, because both boys and girls ask questions, right? <laughs> you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. 
And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, uh, bless this, your word, bless us as we seek to understand it. Um, I I somehow, God, break through, uh, soften our hearts, open our eyes, incline our ears, um, enable us to, to apprehend, to, to get a little bit of what is going on here in this passage, but especially here in this place as we gather week by week. Bless and help us to these ends. We ask you to do this for Jesus' sake, and we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So what are we doing here? What are we doing here in this place? Well, we're here to worship. Um, that's, that's kind of what we, what we know. It's kind of what we understand. But, but what is that? What is worship? And what is it that shapes our understanding of worship? You know, what, what is going on here? We want to try to answer this sort of big question, what it is in the first place, and then and then next week, want to want to kind of deal with the details, but always sort of connecting those details to what is going on here. I mean, this what I so hope to convey to us is that this is a this is an enormous drama. This is an enormous drama. I, I know there are churches that do little dramatic skits and sketches and stuff in their worship services. I know there are people who do drama in worship. I want, I want us to see that worship is drama. This is drama. I'm not watching somebody play act. I'm an actor in the play and I'm not even really an actor because this is the real story. This is the real thing that is going on. And we're participants in this and we're not putting on a show for an invisible participant. We are participating with the ultimate participant who is God himself in this drama. 
That's what I hope somehow over the course of the next couple of weeks we'll begin to, to understand. And let me give you three headings, three ways, if, if you will, that we can think about this. And, and I, I hope to draw this out of Deuteronomy 6 and 7. The first is, is the pattern for worship. What is the pattern for worship? Okay, what's the, what's the thing that sort of shapes in a big and sort of general sense what worship is? What's the pattern for worship? And then what's the nature of worship? What is the true nature of what is going on here? Uh, what is the true nature of worship? And then what is the dynamic of worship? What is the dynamic of worship? Okay, pattern for worship, the true nature of worship, and the dynamic of worship. And again, I hope to draw this out of this passage that we've read. First, the pattern for worship. Let's think first about the word worship itself, just the word worship. It comes from the Old English. It's a contraction of the word worth-ship, worth-ship. And what worship is, basically, is simply ascribing worth to someone who is worthy. That's what it is. It is the work or the business of ascribing worth to someone who is worthy. And so in worship, we're acknowledging that somebody is worthy of recognition, right? Somebody is worthy of respect. Somebody is worthy of our regard. In the Old English, kings were addressed as your worship, right? Your worth-ship, your worship. Bishops, similarly, were addressed as your worship or your worship. Now, we live in a culture, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to toss big words out here and stuff. I'm, I'm really not. But we, we live in a culture which is egalitarian, right? We live in a culture that there is this impulse in our culture on the one hand to sort of reduce everything to a kind of lowest common denominator. And the notion that one person could in any way be above another person offends our democratic sensibilities. Our democratic sensibilities. We don't like it when somebody has a position a place that is above us. Now, understand, there is a theological reason for that, and the fundamental theological reason is we want to be above everybody else. <laughs> that's the nature of sin. I mean, that's just what is it, right? You know what is at the center of the word sin? Bingo. Okay, so I understand that. But there's another thing going on, and that is just that we want to reduce everything to a kind of lowest common denominator. If you read the history of the founding of this country, it's very interesting, and I could recommend a number of authors who are just fascinating in this regard, Joseph Ellis being one of them. Uh, this whole question, what, what were they going to call George Washington? What were they going to call him? They were afraid that people would call him a king. They were afraid that people would call him his act. They debated what they were going to call this guy because they wanted to move away from any title, any name that would confer upon him a dignity, a nobility 
that was different from everybody else. They wanted to get away from kings. They wanted to get away from people who had their place and had their position because of heredity or something else. Okay, And this is just woven into the fabric of our culture. We go to great pains in our culture to remove all of those distinctions. I remember when Jimmy Carter was president. Dates me, I know. Remember when Jimmy Carter was president? I have a friend who worked on Washington, uh, worked in Washington on Capitol Hill at the time, and he told me, and I believe this to be true, that Jimmy Carter didn't like and didn't want Hail to the Chief played when he appeared in his official role as president. He's just a peanut farmer from Georgia. And he didn't want it played. My friend made this, I think, insightful observation that Hail to the Chief wasn't played for a peanut farmer from Georgia. Hail to the Chief was played for the President of the United States in recognition of the office. See, But you see the kind of thing that we're dealing with in our culture. We, we don't like any notion in our culture of one person being elevated above, separated from the rest of the people. There's a real egalitarianism here. And we have to resist that as we come to this idea of worship because when we come to this, this setting of worship, we are coming, there is, a, there is something that is assumed and presupposed in this whole thing. We are coming into a place where there in fact is someone who is elevated above us, who is worthy of our respect, who is to be honored, who is to be regarded, who is to be worshipped because he is worthy of worship. And let me just say this. He's not worthy of worship because I elected him into that office. If I can maybe dance on a couple of toes here, my own included, it's always bothered me a little bit the language that we use when we become Christians. We often say, I accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, and we say it in such a way that suggests that I confer by my choice the distinction of being Savior and Lord. It's a whole lot more consistent with who Jesus is, with who God is for me to say, when I became a Christian, I submitted to a lordship that exists, whether I choose to embrace it or not. That's just sort of fundamental and foundational to our understanding of what worship is. The infinite, eternal God, the one about whom we've spoken spoken in this affirmation of faith, the infinite, eternal God is infinite and eternal, unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is God. He is Lord and King. He is above us. And I don't confer anything upon him by my choice. When I become a Christian, I submit to what is true, that he is Lord and King. Now, if you look at this text, you'll find in this text that seven times, at least, just in the text, 
that I've read, this, these portions of Deuteronomy 6 and 7, seven times you will find the phrase, the Lord your God. The Lord your God. That little phrase is the defining phrase for Israel. It's, a, it's an incredibly significant phrase. Some of you know this. You will know. Uh, some of you know. Perhaps you don't know. Let me, let me be the one to tell you that that word, Lord, which you will find in your translations, translated capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the translation of the Hebrew letters YHWH, from which we get our words Yahweh and Jehovah. Okay? But what they are, what those letters are, are the personal name of God. And those letters come from the Hebrew verb to be, Hayah, H-Y-H. It is some form of that verb. It's the name that God employed and used when he called Moses, if you remember Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was reluctant See, go, go back and read Exodus 3. I'm, I'm encouraging you to read Deuteronomy 6 and 7, but, but go back and read Exodus 3 too. When Moses is reluctant to face the power and the majesty and the arrogance of Pharaoh. You remember the scene, right? Moses is at the burning bush. God, this bush is on fire and it's not being consumed. And then there's this voice that speaks and the voice says, take off your shoes. This is a holy place. And Moses does all of that. And they get into this conversation and it becomes very apparent that Moses is very reluctant, very reticent to take on this role of confronting Pharaoh in order that the people of God who are held in bondage might be set free. Moses doesn't want to have any part of it. And as he is afraid, real major fear of man issues here with Moses. As Moses is afraid to confront the arrogance and the power and the might of Pharaoh, God employs this name. Moses says, who shall I say has sent me? And God says, tell them, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. Tell them Yahweh has sent me to you. And there are two things in this that you've got to be aware of. In employing that name, God is reaffirming for Moses that he is the self-existing, self-defining creator of heaven and earth. He is. Nobody else can say that. Pharaoh can't say that. No other power or authority can say, I am, I exist I have power to exist in and of myself. Not only do I have power to exist in and of myself, but I exist in glory and with wisdom and with might and grace and love. I am who I am. Pharaoh can't say that. Pharaoh is contingent. Pharaoh depends for his existence upon another. He depends for his existence upon the eternally existing one. And and God is saying to Moses, remember who I am. Number one. But number two, the second reason that God gives this name, and the reason this name keeps recurring again and again and again in Deuteronomy 6 and 7, is because this is the name associated with God's covenant faithfulness, with his promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
Now you got to remember that 400 plus years have passed between Moses and the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is saying to Moses, I'm the one who made those promises. I haven't forgotten the promises. I'm the God of power and might, and I am coming. I am coming to set my people free. I'm coming to redeem my people from their oppression, from their bondage, from their slavery. I'm coming with power. And Moses, all I'm asking you to do is go tell Pharaoh. You just go tell him. You don't have to deliver him. It's not you. It's not your power. Not your might. Not your strength. I am. I am. The God of infinite power and might and the God of covenant faithfulness is coming to Pharaoh. You go and you tell him. How about about Aaron? I mean... Huge, huge issues of unbelief in Moses' heart that have to be overcome. Huge, huge issues of unbelief in Mike Malone's heart that have to be overcome. And how does God begin to chip away at that unbelief? He begins to chip away at that unbelief by setting himself before me as the great God, the creator and sustainer of all things, who is faithful to promises that he's made. And I come here every Sunday, myself. I come here every Sunday to ascribe worth to the one who is worthy. That's why I come here. That's why we come here to ascribe worth to him. And then here's the second thing that forms the pattern for our understanding of worship and for what we do here. It is simply the context in which all of this happens in Deuteronomy 6 and 7. What is Moses doing? What is God, in fact, doing as he speaks through Moses to Israel? Deuteronomy, just to give you the historical setting, Deuteronomy is is a Greek word. It's two words actually from the Greek that means second law. Deuteronomos, second law. What is this? Well, it's it's a recapitulation of the law that you find beginning in Exodus chapter 20. And it takes place, this little experience that Moses has here and and God speaking through him and to Israel, it takes place at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. And before leadership is transferred from Moses to Joshua. So they've been wandering around in this desert for 40 years. The transition from Moses to Joshua is about to take place. And this is basically Moses' sermon. God gave it to him. Moses' sermon to Israel before he leaves the scene. And what is it that Moses is doing at this particular point early in this sermon? He's reminding the people, he's reminding the people of the Passover, the Exodus, their wanderings in the wilderness, and the fact that they are on the threshold 
of occupying the land that was promised to them, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where there are vineyards they didn't plant, the fruit of which they will enjoy, a land where there are cities they did not build, which will protect them and keep them safe. They are on the threshold of occupying that land. What's the context? What's the setting for this? The setting is the exodus, the Passover, their deliverance. And they're being brought through the wilderness wandering to the threshold of entering into the promised land. If you look at chapter 6, verses 20 to 23, this is what gets fleshed out here. Let me read them again. When your son asks you in time to come, see if this doesn't sound familiar to you who are parents. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of these testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded us? Dad, why do I have to do this? Nobody else has to do this. Dad, why can't I do this? Everybody else is doing this. How are the fathers to respond to their children when their children ask the question, what are all these commands? What are all these statutes? What are all these rules? The response is to say, you shall say to your son, we were slaves in Egypt. And God the Lord, by a mighty hand, brought us out of Egypt. He showed us signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt, against Pharaoh. He went to war against our enemies. He defeated our oppressors. He liberated us and he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. That's why we do these things. We do these things because our God is not only a God of power and might who remembers what he has promised, but he is a God of power and might who brings his power and might to bear in redeeming us and in delivering us and in setting us free from oppression. If you go back to Exodus, and you read the first 10 chapters, but especially chapters 7, 8, and 9, and 10, you will hear this phrase repeated again and again and again and again. Let my people go. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. And seven times, seven times, when Moses says that to Pharaoh, He says this, let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. And if you do a word study of the word serve, you will find that the word that is translated serve is one of the words that is used to describe what people do when they worship, when they worship. Why do we call this a worship Service, because we come here, 
before the great Redeemer God, the great Creator God, the great Sustainer of all of the creation. We come here to ascribe to Him the worth, the worth of which He is worthy because He is worthy, and we come here to worship Him because He has set us free, because He's liberated us. Look, if you're a Christian this morning, I mean, I mean really and truly a Christian, and I, I think you know what I mean when I say this, right? Not one who's just a Christian because you've got stuff in your head. Not just somebody who's a Christian because you conform to some moral code or because you've had some religious experience. But a Christian is somebody who knows that he or she was oppressed, held in bondage, powerless, helpless, hopeless. So self-absorbed you couldn't even see the light of day. So preoccupied with yourself. So in love with the gods you've created out of your own imagination. So oppressed by those gods. So robbed of life because of those gods. You finally said, by the grace of God, enough is enough. Let me go. Let me go. Your oppressor is far greater than Pharaoh. Your oppressor is sin and death and the devil. And if you're a Christian, the reason you come here this morning is because you remember there is not only one greater than you in power and might and eternal existence, but there is one who has manifested his grace and mercy. You have had your own personal Passover A substitute has been offered in your place. You've come under the blood of the doorposts and the lintel. And when the angel of death passed over your place, you did not die. But in fact, that Passover set you on your way in the direction of the Holy Land. That Passover was the beginning of your exodus. You come here to worship. You come here to worship because a God of infinite grace and mercy, a God of extraordinary compassion has redeemed you from sin and death and the power of the devil. And that God who has redeemed you and set you on your own exodus is now your pillar of fire by night and your cloud by day keeping you warm, protecting you, guiding you, directing you, reassuring you moment by moment by moment that you are on the threshold of entering into the promised land. It could happen this afternoon. It could happen tomorrow. For everybody in this room, it'll happen within 100 years. For a whole bunch of us, it's going to happen way before 100 years. Compared with the stretch of eternity, we are on the threshold of entering into this land which has been promised us, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It is filled with vineyards we didn't plant. It is filled with cities we did not build. And it is all there for us to enjoy. And in it, we are protected and kept safe. And now we are in the wilderness between our redemption and deliverance in Egypt and entering into that promised land and the fire that keeps us warm and the cloud that keeps us safe accompanies us every moment. That's why we come here. Folks, we come here
to step out of the unreal world so that we might step into the real world. I'm going to say more about this next week. You're going to love it. When you cross that threshold back there, I'll get a little bit ahead of myself with this way. You remember with this one. You remember C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? And you remember how when Lucy stepped across the threshold from the unreal world of World War II England into the world of Narnia? You remember the great white witch was reigning on her throne and it was always winter and Christmas never came. You step across that threshold. You step into a new world where Christmas always comes. You step into another world when you cross that threshold. You step into the world of the eternal God who is creator and sustainer and Lord of glory and you step into his loving embrace as the one who has delivered you from your bondage. Your bondage in sin and death under the power of the devil. What is going on here? We come here to ascribe to the Lord his worthiness as creator, Lord, and redeemer. And, and my dear friends, it should be my prayer and your prayer on Saturday night when I get up on Sunday morning It should be your prayer and my prayer. The first thing I should be praying, in fact, I should be praying it beginning when I leave here this morning. I should be praying, Lord Jesus, please come next week. Please come next week. Speak to me. Minister to me. Care for me. Love me. Remind me. Reassure me. Maybe save me if that's what I need. But Lord Jesus, come and be in the midst of your people. That's what's going on here. Now, points two and three in 30 seconds, because these are the things we're going to elaborate next week. What is the true nature or character of worship? If you look at chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, there are words that jump out, that jump out at you. And they are the words chosen, treasured, and love. Chosen, treasured, and love. What's the true nature of worship here? The true nature, the true character of worship is that this is not an act being put on for somebody who's sitting in an audience. What is going on at worship is that the lover comes to embrace his beloved. The lover comes to love his beloved. The groom comes to speak to his bride and say, hang in there. Hang in there, my people. Don't quit. Hang in there because the day is coming. The day is coming when we won't have to do this without sight. The day is coming when I, the lover of your souls, will stand before you and you will lift up your heads and with eyes wide open, you will receive my embrace. This is about the lover coming to his beloved. What's the true nature of worship? 
It's these things. Chosen. Chosen. Treasured. Treasured above everything else. Loved. Why are you loved? Read Deuteronomy 7. You're loved. You know why you're loved this morning? Because you're smart. Because you're rich. Because you dress well. Because you're Americans. Do you know why you're loved? Read the text. Because you're weak. Not because you were numerous and strong, but because you're frail. Not because you were good looking, but precisely because you weren't good looking. But ultimately, why are you loved? Because the Father loves to love. And the Father just loves. He loves you. Out of all of the people, out of all of the races and nations and tribes and tongues on the face of the earth, why does the Father love you? Because he loves you. That's all. Three words. Chosen, treasured, and loved. And what is the dynamic of worship? There's a ton of stuff going on here, and we're going to see it in more detail next week. The dynamic of worship I've already alluded to. It is the lover embracing and interacting with his beloved. It is a drama, my friends. And you'll hear me say next week that it begins with the call to worship. What is God doing? He's calling us out of the world into his presence that he might embrace us, that he might speak to us, that he might hear from us, that we might sing his praises, that he might speak back to us. In fact, what we're going to find out next week is that he himself comes into the midst of this assembly to lead us in our worship. He comes here. You don't see him. He comes here. There is a dynamic in worship, a dynamic that is personal, that is intimate, that is characterized by these words, chosen, treasured, and loved. What's going on here? A whole lot. A whole lot. A whole, whole lot. Way more. Way more than any of us really knows or understands. God is in the midst of his people, loving his bride, cherishing his bride, Leading, protecting, defending, feeding, nourishing, strengthening, rebuking, correcting, challenging, humbling the ones whom he loves. All of us together for his glory and for our good. Let's pray together and let's look forward to being together again next week. Let's pray. Lord, uh, please make our hearts glad with these things. You've loved us with an everlasting love. You are a God, glorious, supreme, mighty, and a God of covenant faithfulness. Having loved us in Jesus, you'll never forsake us until you've brought us safely home. Encourage the hearts of your people with these things. We pray in your name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand. I'm sorry I took more than 40 seconds. Let's stand together and sing number 30. And let me encourage you to sing these words as a real acknowledgement.
that God has been our help in ages past, and he is our hope for years to come. Let's sing number 30.